This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. When Lefty Drizel was hired as the Terrapins men's basketball coach in 1969, he said he had one mission, to make Maryland the UCLA of the East. If I, as a coach, and my staff, if we can't recruit outstanding athletes to come to a school like this and win the wrong profession, you know, and that's the reason I said I thought Maryland would be the UCLA of the East, and uh, I think it will be. This was ambitious. At the time, UCLA was one of the greatest dynasties in all of sports. John Wooden's Bruins were in the midst of a run of 10 national championships in 12 years. No one was going to be the UCLA of the East. No one was going to be the UCLA of anywhere. For Scott Van Pelt, a diehard Maryland fan, even the audacity to make that attempt speaks to the kind of larger-than-life figure that Lefty was. I love that man. Lefty Giselle was, he was another guy that was sort of perfect representation of Maryland. In the ACC pecking order, Maryland knew where it stood. The Blue Bloods were down in North Carolina, UNC, Duke, even NC State. And in the DMV, they lagged behind Georgetown as the most prestigious basketball program in the area. So Maryland fans carried a chip on their shoulder, this little brother mentality when it came to competing with those schools. But Lefty saw something bigger for the Terps. And on the strength of his charm as a recruiter and his skill as a motivator, he thought he could get them to that same level. At first glance, he didn't seem like an elite college basketball coach. He played this dumb guy, all right? Well, I don't know, you know, Leonard Bias and you know, he went to Duke. Lefty was just happy to let you think he was some rube. He was not. And he wanted to make Maryland UCLA the East, famously. Came really damn close. Well, maybe they didn't come that close. But still, Lefty increased Maryland's national profile, and the Terps had some great teams. Ranked in the top five in 74, winning the ACC regular season titles in 75 and 80. He recruited at an incredibly high level. That's what Lefty was known for, convincing top prospects to come to College Park. 
Van Pelt told me a famous story about lefty recruiting Tom McMillan, a future Olympian and congressman. McMillan said, very bright guy. Well, North Carolina's got more volumes in the library. And Lefty told him, if you read all the books in our library, I'll get you some more books. In the early 80s, Lefty turned on the charm with Lynn Bias, a good recruit, if not yet a phenom. Bias would become the best player Lefty ever coached. And when the public was grieving his death, when the media and the university administration and the justice system all found themselves searching for answers, their attention turned to the same man who had convinced Bias to become a Terrapin, the man who had become an icon in Maryland. They turned their eyes to Lefty Drizel. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm your host, Jordan ritter Khan. Lefty remembers the first time he saw Bias play. He came to my basketball camp from the time he was in about the ninth grade, I guess, maybe the eighth. So I knew when I saw him in camp, I said, that kid can play. So I kind of followed him since then. Lefty recognized Bias's talent, and really, he signed him without too much trouble. Bias considered offers from NC State and Oregon, but College Park was right down the street from his home. Bias wanted to be close to his family. He wanted to be a Terp. Lefty once told the Baltimore Sun it was one of the easiest recruiting battles he ever had. Throughout his time coaching Bias, Lefty could tell he was special. And it wasn't just the talent. One thing that made him great, he worked so hard in practice. I mean, he every possession of whatever drill we were running, whether it was ball handling drill or defensive drill, or, rebound and drill. I mean, he never let up. I mean, in fact, we'd be scrimmaging and practicing. He would get every rebound and score every point, block every shot. So I used to have to bring him. I never did this with any other player I ever coached. I said, Leonard, come over and sit next to me, man. These other guys got to learn how to play. (laughs) Yeah, Bias was so dominant, his coach had to ask him to stop practicing. Otherwise, the other guys couldn't get better. We're used to star players, understandably, not taking practice seriously to save their energy for games. But Bias was practicing too hard. He dominated practices. In fact, the other thing that he was good at, we, you know, every coach, I think, runs suicides. You know, you you sprint up to the free throw line and back, and in the half court, back, other free throw line, back, and other baseline and back, and he won every time. He was the fastest player we had. With Bias emerging as a star, Lefty had turned Maryland into one of the most exciting programs in the country. And Lefty developed a deep fondness for his most talented player. Van Pelt tells another emblematic story. My favorite Lefty and Leonard story, Keith Gatlin shared with me, they were playing at NC State. They were wearing yellow jerseys. And at halftime, the paint and the jersey was coming out of it because he was sweating so much. And there's like yellow paint coming down his arm. And at halftime, Lefty screaming at the team, look at Leonard. Leonard is a warrior. Give the ball to Leonard. 
And they gave the ball to Leonard in the second half, and they beat NC State down in Raleigh. But it was – I love it because I can picture Lefty pointing to this Greek god of a man with the sweat and the paint of his jersey coming down his perfectly chiseled arms. And Like, was he a great coach? He knew to tell him to give the ball to that guy. You know? And they did. As we've established, bias captured the affection of everyone on Maryland's campus. That included the chancellor, John B. Slaughter. An electrical engineer by trade, Slaughter had been appointed by President Jimmy Carter as the director of the National Science Foundation before being lured out of government to take the job at Maryland in 1982. He was the first black chancellor in the school's history and one of the only black people in America to hold the highest office at an institution of Maryland's size. As chancellor, he came to know and care for Lynn Bias. He had a wonderful smile. He was always seemed very calm and considerate. He was a gentleman. He had a great sense of humor, but he also was uh, committed to what it was he was doing. Slaughter also had a really good relationship with Lefty, at least to start. The moment I came to Maryland, he was uh, very warm toward me. I considered Lefty a friend. When Bias was a senior, Keith Gatlin was in his junior year as the team's point guard. Gatlin says Lefty's power as a coach didn't just stop at the recruitment process. Back then, Gatlin says, most coaches ran their programs with an iron fist. The power structure was clear, but he thought Lefty was different. I think Lefty was ahead of his time because he connected with us. So when he had to, you know, bring the hammer down or whatever, we knew it was coming from a good place because he'd already connected with us. Players may have connected with Lefty, but he could be obstinate, ornery, kind of a jackass at times, especially when dealing with the media, as Molly Dunham Glassman recalls. What was Lefty like to cover? Oh, well, I don't know, you know. Lefty's a very complicated guy. I always got along with him. Um, We had our moments. He certainly was not a feminist, and he was not happy to see women on the beat. Really? And what did, how did he express that? Well, he would, a couple of my predecessors, he would belittle them in post-game press conferences, not, not like calling them out outright, but just like, rolling his eyes at a question or like I told you before, or if you had been paying attention, I mean, you had to do your homework. You had to know what you were talking about. He would not tolerate fools at all. When Molly says Lefty wasn't a feminist, she's not just referring to the way he treated female reporters. In 1983, a female student accused Herman Veal, a starting forward for the Terrapins, of sexual misconduct. Lefty handled it badly. He called the woman who made the allegation and asked her to drop it. And later, when news of that phone call became public, the university's women's center came out with a statement criticizing Lefty. When asked about it, Lefty said, quote, I don't care about the women's center. I am the men's center. This did not go over well. Veal was suspended. As for Lefty, I had to reprimand him publicly. 
and uh, that was difficult. So that that sort of made our relationship a little bit more difficult. But still, Slaughter stuck by him until three years later in 1986. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. Lefty didn't go to the 1986 NBA draft. It just wasn't a thing college coaches did back then. But Bias called him afterward. Oh, it meant a great deal. But then the next morning is the saddest day of my life. That day started with another phone call. Mr. and Mrs. Bias want you to come to the hospital. I said, what, is it Leonard Bias? He said, I can't tell you that. They just want you, they're over here at the hospital, want you to come over. In the hours after Bias's death, Lefty says he did his best to support his team. Well, I told several of them were over at the hospital. You know, they were crying and upset. And I said, look, you get all the players together and come to my house at one o'clock or whatever the time was. And so they yeah. did. They all came over my house and then we just prayed together. And I tried to comfort them the best I could. He didn't know it at the time, but the events of that morning would begin the process that led to Lefty's downfall at Maryland. According to comments made that August by Arthur Marshall Jr., the state's attorney for PG County, Bias's agent, Lee Fentress, called Lefty that morning and asked him to have someone clean up the room where Bias was using cocaine. Marshall said that Lefty then asked assistant coach Oliver Purnell to do so. Purnell went to the room, but didn't clean it. So this brought up an important question. Did Lefty try to have someone destroy evidence? It led to an obstruction of justice investigation by police. Grand jury proceedings began on August 23rd, a couple months after Bias's death, and wrapped just four days later. Ultimately, they chose not to indict Lefty. The testimony remained sealed, and neither Fentress nor Purnell agreed to speak with me. Jeff Harding, who worked in the state's attorney's office, was a big part of the investigation into Lefty. Even today, he won't say much about the grand jury investigation. The idea there was, did Lefty know what had happened before the police, or did he obstruct justice, or he did he hinder the investigation? Yeah. And the grand jury didn't charge him with anything. Yeah. And he can't say more about the grand jury, but he does want to remind us of something. Lefty was still an icon in Maryland. Take the grand jury out of it. I'm not commenting on that. But you're in Prince George's County in the apron of the University of Maryland, and you charge Lefty Drizel with something? Right, right. I mean, look what happened with Tribble. Yeah. But you put Lefty in front of that jury? Yeah. They're, they're gonna convict me yeah. of putting him in front of them. I asked Lefty about all of this. 
Um, you know, I know one of the things that came up was you telling Coach Purnell to clean things up at the apartment. Did you ask him to do that? I don't remember telling him that. You know, who said I said that? That was public. Because you, you had the, uh, ultimately the, the charges were dropped. But when you were facing some of the legal stuff in the aftermath, I know that that was one of the... Yeah, I didn't give you... Look, I can show you a notebook that I sent them a clip in every time some athlete died of drugs. I didn't have anything to do with him using drugs. You know, I hate drugs. I, I always hated them. In fact, I, when I got my master's degree, my thesis or whatever you call it was ergogenic AIDS in sports. So I've always been opposed to drugs in sports. I never told uh, Oliver Pernell that. That's a, uh, to my knowledge. I told him to go over to the dorm because not all of them were at the hospital and tell them to be at my house at 1 o'clock or whatever time it was. I don't know. I, I don't recall telling him yeah. to clean up a room, you know. Okay. Yeah, that that's just one of the things that was in the, uh, you know, when I went back at some of the newspaper articles. Well, look, there's a lot of crap in the newspaper articles. <laughs> Why did they not want me to coach anymore? Can you answer I, that? <laughs> what did I, I do? <laughs> I loved Leonard Bosch like he was my son. And he called me to thank me for helping him get drafted that high. Now, you know, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Merlin, but it was just turned into a big political thing. Lefty went on like this for a while talking through the criticism he received, the consequences he faced in the aftermath of Bias's death, like it's all still raw, all these years later. But after several minutes, the conversation turned back to that request. If I told him to clean up the room, I don't remember it. I remember, I think, telling him to go over and tell the players to come to my house. I might have I... asked him, did you clean up the room or did you see any drugs? But I don't remember that. I don't, I don't think that. Yeah, yeah. And I... The, the, yeah, the hold, only... it, hold it, Let's say I sure. did. So the freak what? He was in the hospital. They were going to find out if he was on drugs, right? Sure. I mean, it, I, I never told him to clean up. I don't think. I don't know. Maybe I did. But I wasn't trying to hide that he was on drugs. Hell, everybody knew he was... The doctors were going find out whether he was on drugs. I never told Oliver that, I don't think. I think yeah. I told him he'd go over there and tell him to come to my house. Ask yeah. him. Yeah, I, I, I would love to. I'm, I'm trying to, to talk to him as well. Oh, well, man. see, you're trying to find out that I did something wrong. Oh, that, if, that is not, if I, I can assure you that wrong. is not the case. See, that's what I don't like about talking about this to you or anybody else. I never, I loved Leonard Byers. If I, if I thought he was on drugs, I'd have kicked his ass off the team. And the hell do I remember something 35 years ago? Sure, sure. Even if I did, I wasn't telling him to try to hide what killed Leonard. Again, the grand jury chose not to indict Lefty. But that same summer, the university started its own investigations. Well, I think it's safe to say that for roughly the next 
four to five months, I did nothing but deal with the after effects of Lynn Bias's death. Slaughter needed answers. His most famous student had died after using incredibly pure cocaine, right there in an on-campus dorm. Everyone needed answers. So he formed two committees and launched two investigations, one into drug use on campus and another into the academic performance of student-athletes. Now, the academic performance of basketball players doesn't have anything to do with a cocaine-related death. To be honest, looking back 35 years later, the idea seems kind of ridiculous. But at the time, with all of the media coverage swirling around the program, certain details captured public attention, particularly the news that Bias, like many other NBA prospects, had stopped going to class in the spring of his senior year, as well as the fact that other players weren't on track to graduate. This made the basketball program seem to many like it existed only to compete, not to educate. The accusation uh, was throughout the press and a lot of people in the public was accusing the university of being a place where drugs were prevalent but that proved not to be the case. So Maryland was not a hotbed of drugs, but Slaughter felt the team's academic performance was not satisfactory. The academic committee showed that we needed to strengthen our academic academic requirements for our athletes. This left the Maryland players already racked with grief moving through the world under a microscope. Here's Derek Lewis. You didn't want to go anywhere because there was somebody going to be waiting for you. They could be dressed, they dressed like me and you. And then all of a sudden they pull out a tape recorder and they want to tape, you know, let me ask you a question. So that was great. You know, and we weren't, you know, we were growing young men. We weren't, we weren't men yet, but we were growing young men. We were still, we were still, you know, young guys. Slaughter may have been feeling pressure from the media and the public but he was already skeptical of the culture surrounding big-time college athletics. I was very concerned about the fact that athletics was superseding the academic mission of uh, big-time schools, replacing athlete first. And we were following the practice that uh, we were just preparing these young men and women for a professional career. In the wake of the academic investigation, the school set aside $350,000 to hire a psychologist and 84 tutors to work with student-athletes. Bias was 21 credits short of graduation when he died, and the press made this seem like a really big deal. A Chicago Tribune columnist wrote, quote, When Bias died, everyone found out he really wasn't a student at all. Lefty still bristles at the criticism of players' academic performance. For him, it just meant Bias was serious about basketball, but that he was still on track academically. His last semester, okay, he was playing, so he missed some classes probably by playing, by being on trips. Yeah. As soon as the season was over, the Celtics, everybody wanted him to try out, right? So he went to about six or eight tryout camps, which would take up a lot of his class time, right? So he very seldom went to class. Why did he have to spend time thinking about class? 
his last semester because he knew he was going to be a multi-multi-millionaire, right? And he said, I'll go to summer school and make it up, which he did. This is true. Remember, the reason Bias was on campus the night before he died was because he was enrolled in summer school. It's hard to imagine this happening now for the number two pick to still be taking classes, but that's what he was doing. And yet, Molly says, it was hard not to be struck by what Slaughter's investigation turned up. I'm very cynical about college athletes being student athletes. And I think that Maryland is not alone in this at all. But it brought to light at Maryland a lax atmosphere where the kids weren't going to class. So the question became, If the athletics department wasn't making sure players went to class, then what else were they missing? So the whole atmosphere of, well, you know, how could drugs have gotten into the basketball team? It became clear that, well, you know, lots of things happen with these basketball players, just like every other student on campus when they're away from their parental controls, uh, they get out of control sometimes. During the academic investigation, Lefty told the Washington Post, quote, if a player don't graduate, that's on him. In Lefty's defiance, Slaughter thought he saw something deeper. In the book, Lenny Lefty and the Chancellor by C. Fraser Smith, Slaughter says, quote, I concluded that he did not have the respect for the players that would be needed if they were to succeed in life. Not at basketball, but in life. While the grand jury investigation ended with no indictment on August 27th, the university investigations continued. The man was a legend at Maryland. He'd taken the program places it never knew it could reach. But now, Lefty started to wonder if he could keep his job. I had met with him in his office, and he asked me, he said, Dr. Slaughter, am I going to be your coach? And I said, Lefty, I've not made that decision fully yet. As you know, I'm I'm still investigating the situation. So he said to me at that time that you can't fire me. And that was a challenge that I could not let go by. Why did you feel that, that that was a challenge you could not let go by? I did not like that response that you can't fire me. He was challenging my authority to make the right decision. It wasn't long after that that I decided that that he had to go. Technically, Slaughter didn't fire Lefty, but he did push him out. That October, Lefty resigned. And for Slaughter, this was a risky decision. He had so much support from fans. Lefty was loved by Maryland fans. And I think he felt that he had enough supporters that he did not need to be concerned about the fact that I may want to fire him. I think that was the basis for his statement, you can't fire me. For Lefty, this was incredibly painful. At a press conference announcing his resignation, he said, quote, It is obvious that the administration wants to make a coaching change, and I do not want to coach if I am not wanted. Yeah, Lefty paid for it. I don't know that Lefty should have paid for it. I don't know. I don't know what should have happened. Here's Mike Wilbon. And I'm glad I couldn't understand 
the 360 degrees of it at 27 years old. And a lot of people say, will say they didn't understand it. They're lying. They didn't understand it either. We made up the rules as we went. And people felt so bad about it. And when, when you feel so bad about something so tragic, somebody's got to be accountable. Van Pelt feels the same way. Someone had to pay. Plain simple. Someone had to pay. This incomprehensible loss, someone had to pay so that they could say that, well, well, that won't happen again. And it ended up being lefty. And it, I mean, there was a reckoning that was pro- that's necessary. I mean, if something like that happens, I think everyone asks themselves, well, what role did we play in allowing this to happen? It's like you're trying to fix the wrong that can't be fixed. And, and so, I don't know. I mean, was it turning on the bright lights at closing time and realizing why we got some stuff to clean up? Sure. I, 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 I'm not saying that that isn't the case, but it's just lefty became this convenient sort of scapegoat. All of this unfolded over the summer, around the same time the grand jury indicted Brian Tribble. Not only was Lefty pushed out, but Slaughter made the decision to cancel all games scheduled in the fall semester of the following season. That's hard to imagine today, but Slaughter felt it was the right thing to do. For him, it wasn't punishment. He was doing it for the good of the players. My basketball players could not leave their dormitories without the press and cameras following them around the campus. And uh, that's the reason I felt that I needed to give them the time to to be students and not try to be in a competitive basketball environment at the same time because I knew that they couldn't do both. In December of that year, they started playing again. Slaughter hired Bob Wade, a local high school coaching legend, who became the first black coach in ACC history. For the players, all of this, the death of their friend, the loss of part of their season, the constant scrutiny, could feel overwhelming. Here's Gatlin. I got into a place where I I didn't really, really feel like I had a purpose. I stopped going to class. I just went into a shell. Gatlin injured his meniscus, took a medical red shirt, and considered transferring. And uh, my mother told me, she said, you know, if you leave, you're going to be part of the problem. If you stay and show people the characters you have and go back, get serious in school and get your degree, you would always be to come back to Maryland and you'll be smelling like a rose. Lewis played, but it was rough. I mean, we struggled. We didn't win any ACC games that year. We finished 9-17 on the year. And again, it was a struggle. For both of them, the suspicions that hung over the program lingered far longer than they could have imagined. Derek Lewis and I was the two seniors, and I still feel like we suffered the most monetarily from the aftermath. I mean, I went to couple of teams in the pros, and Derek did too. And we were both told that, you know, I like how you play. I just can't have you around for everything that happened at Maryland. And we were just like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, and my agent and Derek agent said, well, they'll take a drug test for you and urine sample for you, like, you know, 24 hours a day. They don't drink or smoke. And as for Lefty? I was deeply hurt. 
they didn't want me to coach there anymore, but I was getting paid. <laughs> He'd actually just signed a 10-year contract and there was no buyout. So even though he was pushed out, they gave him every dime. See, they paid me for nine years. Right. My total salary, exactly what I would have been making if cost of living raised every year. For nine years, they paid me every bit of it. After Lefty was let go and the program rebooted, the pain of Bias's loss lingered for a long, long time. And it wasn't just there on campus. There were even more layers of panic just a few miles down the road on Capitol Hill. Next on What If. When Len Bias died, my boss came to me and said, the speaker has decided, you know, we're going to go ahead on a big anti-crime, anti-drug bill, and I need you to come with me to this meeting. I was actually at Norman's house that night sleep when they came and bust down the door. You know, it was like, okay, well, I ain't got nothing to do with this. If you can't trust your government, who can you trust? What If the Lynn Bias Story is written and reported by me, Jordan Ritterkahn. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Our producers are Mallory Rubin, Noah Malale, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee. With production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. David Shoemaker designed our logo. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.